From the New Media Project at the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, post-cataract CME. There was an increased risk of CME in patients who had a retinal vein occlusion and also people who were on a prostaglandin preoperatively, and then also in patients who had an intraoperative complication. First this. The Accreditation Council for Continuing Medical Education requires a financial interest disclosure before any CME activity. Dr. Henderson declares no real or apparent conflicts of interest. No single department of ophthalmology has the best lectures in every field, Open Ophthalmology is a meta-school in which lecturers from different departments have access to ophthalmology residents everywhere. I've seeded this marketplace of ideas with my own course on clinical optics. Who's your department's best lecturer? Let me know and come visit us at openophthalmology.com. Open Ophthalmology. Let a hundred flowers bloom. The cataract extraction took you 15 minutes. Post-op day one, the eye was white and quiet, devoid of corneal edema, but the patient stubbornly refuses to see well. You assure her that the vision will improve with time, but if the etiology is cystoid macular edema, she may be in for quite a wait. How long? Bonnie Henderson knows. She's the author of a new study on post-cataract CME, and I'm happy to have her as my guest today. Bonnie, welcome to A Scene From Here. Let me ask you, what's the difference between clinical CME and angiographic CME? So angiographic CME is where you see macular edema um, on an angiogram, but it doesn't necessarily, uh, it's not necessarily connected to any visual loss. Versus clinical CME, there's actually some visual loss along with some angiographic evidence of macular edema. How common are the two, Bonnie? The angiographic CME is much more common. So the reports range anywhere from 3 to 5% all the way up to even 70% in some reports. And clinical CME is a lot less a lot less frequent and you see reports stating r- roughly 1 to 2% of cases have clinical CME. Cases after cataract surgery. Cases after cataract surgery exactly. And what is the presumed etiology here? So people think that there is um, some leakage of the blood vessels of perifoveal capillaries in the retina due to inflammatory mediators that cause leak, leaking of exudate into the retinal area, causing the edema. Prior to this study, what factors were understood to be associated with post-operative, post-cataract CME? Well, a lot of reports have looked into what factors are related with CME, and most commonly people know of diabetes being associated with CME, as well as other inflammatory conditions such as uveitis is also really well known to be associated with CME. And then also if there's any intraoperative, sorry, intraoperative complications uh, such as posterior capsular tears or vitreous loss, then those events are related to increased incidence of cystoid macular edema. Bonnie, what is a typical therapeutic regimen for CME? I, I know this is a little bit of a loaded question. Sure. <laughs> um, the, it's controversial. I think there, no one really knows the right answer to that, and people treat CME very differently. So some people treat CME with just non-steroidals. Some people treat it with just steroids, and some people treat it with a combination 
of non-steroidals and steroids. So if you look at different practices or different surgeons, people will treat it in a variety of, of different methods. Also, they will treat it for different lengths. So some people will treat it only for a few weeks. Some people will treat it for months. Some people will treat it for a lot longer. So it's somewhat controversial and debatable as to what is the exact regimen that should be followed. Bonnie, what is the natural history of CME if left untreated? Well, if left untreated, it seems that most cases will resolve spontaneously. So even if you didn't catch it, even if you didn't treat it, or the patient never returned for a follow-up examination, most of the cases will actually resolve. So that's the good part of CME. Um, But the duration of the CME is very, very different. And that's one of the points in the paper is that if you treat it differently, whether you treat it with steroids alone or non-steroidals alone or combine them, or if you treat it with nothing at all, the duration is actually very, very different in those types of groups. Bonnie, what was the purpose of this study? So the purpose of the study was to look at all the different factors. Since there are so many different factors that could potentially cause CME, we wanted to look at all the different factors altogether. We also wanted to look at how long does CME last, and if we treat it in different, in different manners, does that affect the length of CME? Can I get you to describe the design of this study? Okay, so the design of this study, it's a retrospective study, and um, to do this study, we used our big database that I um, started with Sandy Kramers, and she's the co-principal investigator on the database. It's called OASIS, and what it does is it records all the patient uh, factors in any cataract surgery that's done by a resident in the comprehensive service at Massachusetts High and Year Infirmary. So what we do prospectively is record all the patient data from their pre-op information, the intra-op information, and all their post-op visit follow-ups. So we try to document everything about that, that course of cataract surgery. So what we did was retrospectively look at all the data from 2001 up until 2006 when we stopped the study to look at all the patients who developed cystoid macular edema. And from those cases, then we analyzed all the different factors that we could think of that could potentially um, be involved with cystoid macular edema. So we looked at things like age, as well as the density of the cataract, as well as other systemic diseases, obviously things like diabetes, hypertension, history of other ocular disease like glaucoma or uveitis or, or retinal disease. And that way we have a much broader collection of what different factors may be involved with increased risk of developing CME. And then on top of that, we looked at all the intraoperative data. So if they had an intraoperative complication, such as a posterior capsular tear, we also looked at different elements of how long did the case take? Did they use more BSS in their case? Did their FACO time, was it much longer than the other cases? And then postoperatively, we were able to track their postoperative vision, their refraction, if they developed CME, when did they develop it, and how long did it take to resolve? How did you establish the diagnosis of CME for these patients? So the so this was a, a study looking at clinical CME and not angiographic CME. So um, we diagnosed the CME based on, number one, a decrease in visual acuity and followed up with either an OCT, a fluorescein angiogram, or confirmation by a retina specialist. So the the first 
um, the first element that we found was that the patient had returned and had worse than expected visual acuity. So, for instance, if they did not have macular pathology or any other reason why they should not have 20-20 vision and they were less than 20-20 and even with the best corrective refraction they were still less than 20-20, then those patients would have gone on to have further testing such as an OCT or an angiogram and those test results uh, revealed that there was macular edema. Bonnie, what were your findings? What were your results? Sure. So when we looked at the uh, number of cases, we looked at um, 1,659 cases in the database. And of those, about, I believe, 39 patients developed clinical significant CME. So overall, the rate was about 2.35, which is quite average for all the reports of CME that you see in the literature. Now, keep in mind, all of these cases are resident-performed cases. So even though one of the criticisms would be, well, you know, that may be different than surgery performed by an attending. Um, one of the nice things about looking at resident performed surgery is that usually the resident performed surgery takes a lot longer than a typical attending performed surgery just because they are learning. So the time is a lot longer and also usually the complication rate of posterior capsular tear or vitreous loss is much higher in resident performed surgery. So those actually increase the possibility of finding cases of CME. So I think that um, it actually increases our yield, which was which was better for the study. And so when you look at all of the cases of CME, then we analyzed in a uh, multifactorial regression all the factors that we already discussed, and we found that there was an increased risk of CME in patients who had a retinal vein occlusion and also people who were on a prostaglandin preoperatively, and then also in patients who had an intraoperative complication. So um, some of those were already known, such as intraoperative complication. We knew that there was an increased risk of CME, as well as patients who were on prostaglandin analogs prior to surgery, but the retinal vein occlusion had never been reported previously. So that was something interesting that we found that it struck out in the results that this definitely increases the risk of CME. Did you break out the total population into subgroups um, like patients with diabetes? We did. We did. That's an excellent point. We ran the analysis um, in two ways. The first, we actually didn't exclude any diabetics at all. So we took all the patients and analyzed it the same with all the different factors. And um, one of the problems that we had was it's very difficult to determine postoperatively whether that macular edema was cystoid macular edema or was it clinically significant macular edema due to diabetes. And oftentimes on an angiogram, if you just have macular edema, it, it, it is difficult even for a retina specialist to know exactly you know, what was the etiology of that edema. So in order to be a lot more accurate about the incidence of CME, we decided to run a subset analysis and exclude all the patients with diabetes or intraoperative complications to see if there actually was a relationship with uh, factors such as retinal vein occlusions or preoperative prostaglandin use that increase the risk of CME. And when we did that, we still found that those results held. And therefore, even when we pulled out the subset without the diabetics, the patients with a history of retinal vein occlusions and prostaglandin use still had an increased risk of developing CME that was significant. Were all of the patients treated with the same regimen? No. 
So when this is a retrospective study, so we looked at all the patients who had developed CME to look at how they were treated, and there were four groups. The first group was a group that was only treated with steroids. The second was only treated with non-steroidals. The third was treated with both steroids and non-steroidals. And then the fourth, there were some patients who weren't treated at all with any topical drops at all. And when we looked at the different groups, the duration of CME varied amongst the four groups. And the significant finding was you know, somewhat obvious and common sense that the, the treatment group that had no treatment um, took the longest to resolve their CME. So they took on average, I believe, something like 249 days um, to resolve their CME versus if you look at the group that were treated with the non-steroidals and the steroids, they had a much shorter mean resolution time of approximately 80 days or 82 days. So it was a significantly shorter time when they are treated. How do your findings compare with those of prior studies? So the prior studies, for instance, the one by Jeff Heyer looked at um, steroids and Ketorolac, another non-steroidal, and they also concluded that if you use the two together, that it does benefit the patient and their CME does resolve. Um, I don't think any other study really looked at different manners of treatment prospectively to see if the treatment arms would yield a different resolution time. It's so hard to have a prospective study on CME with large enough numbers because, as you know, the, the incidence rate is so low that it's very similar to studying endophthalmitis. You know, it's just very hard to do a good prospective study. Fortunately, it's, you know, not as devastating usually, and, and the incidence rate is a little bit higher than, than endophthalmitis, but it still is very hard to study. In your program or, or in your private practice now, are diabetics routinely treated differently from non-diabetics after cataract extraction? They are. So both in the program at Mass Ioneer and also currently now, they are treated differently. And um, some, some surgeons will pre-treat them and some surgeons will not. And some surgeons will treat them postoperatively, just prophylactically for three months. And I always treat all my diabetic patients post postoperatively for three months. Um, currently, I don't pretreat unless they have developed CME in the other eye or unless they're, they have other risk factors. For instance, if they have a history of a retinal vein inclusion, if I know that their diabetes is not well controlled, they have a lot of diabetic retinopathy, diabetic macular edema to begin with, then I will pretreat them. But if they're a diabetic without any retinopathy at all, I usually don't pretreat them. And um, when you look at one of the subset analysis that we did in the study, and we looked at those high-risk patients, such as diabetics, and we prophylactically treat them with three months of non-steroidals, even if they don't develop CME, we find that their risk of developing CME is equal to non-high-risk patients with CME. So in other words, if you take high-risk patients and you treat them prophylactically for three months postoperatively, it seems to minimize their elevated risk back to a baseline um, closer to the same amount of risk that quote-unquote normal or non-high-risk patients have. Although the NSAID plus steroid combination therapy did not yield improved visual acuity over the study period, this therapy did shorten the duration of the CME. Can I get you to talk about that? Sure, absolutely. Um, You're right in that when you look over the course of time in the study, 
the best corrective visual acuity of all the groups, no matter whether they were treated or not treated or how they were treated, there was no significant difference in their final best corrective visual acuity. So that goes back to our prior point that oftentimes CME will resolve. So that's great for patients. So in the future, no matter how you're treated, hopefully eventually they will end up with good vision. However, when you look at the different groups, they do have different resolution times. So although you can say it doesn't matter how you treat them because they'll eventually end up okay, um, most people would much rather have better vision sooner. And so when you look at the different groups, the, the group that had the shortest resolution time was a group that was treated with both non-steroidals and steroids. And so they tended to heal faster and recover faster than those that were not treated with anything. So, and the, the difference is quite large. It's a matter of you know, 80 days or so compared to 250 days. So the 250 days is a long time not to have good vision. So I think a study like this shows that it is very beneficial for patients to be treated with non and steroids. Having learned what you've learned from this study, what do you do in your own practice now? So what I do is all my patients, um, especially those with diabetes or intraoperative complications or if they are on prostaglandins preoperatively or if they have retinal diseases such as a, a epiretinal membrane or even macular uh, degeneration, I will always postoperatively give them three months of non-steroidal drops. Um, if they are on prostaglandins prior to surgery, I will switch them to a, a different glaucoma class of drugs. So I will change them a month before the surgery to something like uh, uh, brimonidine, so something that is not a prostaglandin analog. And then postoperatively, those patients, I will keep them off the prostaglandin at least for a month as well, just to prophylactically decrease their risk of developing cystic macular edema. Now, for those patients whom you switch from a prostaglandin mediator uh, one month prior to surgery, you, you, you don't then uh, put them on, or, or, or perhaps you, you do put them on, three months of non-steroidals after surgery. That, that The point just wasn't clear to me. Can I have you flesh that out? Sure. Um, I actually do still treat them three months postoperatively, even if I've switched them off the prostaglandin prior to surgery. And no one really knows how long you should be off that prostaglandin. I think that's always another good question is how long is enough time before the surgery to switch them? So is a week long enough? Does it have to be a month? Is it a month long enough? You know, no one really knows the answer to that. So I think some good studies need to be done to look at how long someone should be off prostaglandins to minimize their risk of CME. Bonnie Henderson, thank you so much. Thanks so much. Bonnie Henderson is Assistant Clinical Professor of Ophthalmology at the Massachusetts Eye and Ear Infirmary at the Harvard Medical School in Boston, Massachusetts. Her paper, Clinical Pseudophagic Cystoid Macular Edema, Risk Factors for Development and Duration After Treatment, appears in the September 2007 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Ask questions of Dr. Henderson or any of our previous guests, or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. 
Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. Those numbers can be found on our website as seenfromhere.com. As Seen From Here is a production of the New Media Project of the NYU School of Medicine and the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.